Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight is the third uh, of these lectures. I uh, hope to pick up where we did uh, a week ago. Uh, the title is uh, The Jewish Pen Under the Shadow of the Christian Sword, The Struggle to Maintain a Literate Jewish Culture uh, in the Toxic Environment of the Late Middle Ages. And uh, every one, one of these words, you'll see what I mean by the time we're done tonight, or I will have done a bad job. Um, last week, of course, we talked about the uh, culmination of the uh, change. I remember... Uh, two cultures, over and over again I'm saying it, uh, two cultures which are in, in, have many interesting similarities, of course differences as well. And one of the similarities is each arises at the same time as the other, and each is basically ignorant of the other. Each thinks it knows what the other is all about, but it's not really what the other thinks. Um, Talmudic Judaism ar- arises exactly at the same time as Christianity, around the year one up to the year 500. Uh, that's when the Gemara and everything is put together. And Lahabdo, that's when the Christian religion uh, starts and takes off the ground and spreads until it becomes a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, but that's not where the parallelism ends because uh, it takes another 700 years. Uh, 700 years is a long time. From 500 to 1200 approximately for each of these two religions to consolidate. Okay? For Talmudic Judaism, because remember, once upon a time the Gemara didn't exist. It was something different. The Torah of is the same, but the form of the Talmudic didn't exist once upon a time. And Christianity, of course, once upon a time didn't exist. And uh, it takes many centuries till they, you know, kind of develop in their own ways, each one differently, of course, but to consolidate into a crystallized form. Uh, I would say that by the time you get to the 1200s, uh, Judaism is, 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 has really undergone a certain crystallization. Um, Remember, Rashi's in the 10-hundreds, Tos in the 11-hundreds. By the early 1200s, you have the Talmudic stuff down, done in a certain way. Uh, the Rambam dies in 1204. So, no, there's another seminal influence in the formation and the crystallization of the culture. Obviously, Jewish culture doesn't end in the 1200s, but hasn't changed that much, except in one or two ways, hasn't changed that much since then. Okay? We kind of pride ourselves as not having changed that much since the 13th century. Interesting when you look at it that way, because in modern culture, that's a negative. Okay? Um, but there you have it. But again, even though they both crystallized, the Jews don't really know what Christianity is all about, nor do they care. So they create their own um, understandings of what Christianity is, and basically, the Toldus Yeshu and all the stuff that we spoke about last week. And what they really are doing is uh, ascribing and uh, coming up with all kinds of stories and understandings of the various aspects of Christianity, which aren't necessarily accurate at all. And the Christians are doing the same thing. Um, the whole Christian religion, theologically, is based upon the idea that Judaism, unfortunately, doesn't understand Judaism. You understand? That's where the popes were coming from, as I explained. Uh, Judaism, if you only really understood what the Old Testament says, you would see the truth of Christianity. What's wrong with you? You have scales over your eyes. You have, uh, you know, like the prophet Isaiah says, 
uh, stop up their ears and fatten up their hearts. That's how they talk all the time. One of the main reasons they don't kill the Jews is because they say it's a nebuch. You understand? And, 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 and Jews have so many, uh, so much uh, talents. If they would just see the light, they would use these talents in the service of the true faith. And uh, that's why if you ever do rarely get a Jew who converts, it's like a real catch for them. Because now they use all those talents for the right reasons as they see it. Um, and so, you know, they didn't know what we're doing. And we didn't know what they were doing. But each one convinced himself that they know what the other one's all about. And until the 1200s, who cares? Especially from the point of Jews who are a minority and a helpless minority, uh, the expression is, is a, is a sheep in the middle of a den full of 70 wolves. What are the chances, mathematically, if you have a sheep <laughs> with 70 wolves uh, to survive? The answer is the wolves got to be so interested in fighting each other, they don't have time for the sheep. I wouldn't put those odds, I mean, they're not great odds. But it is a fact that the Jews throughout the Middle Ages and later are a militarily helpless minority. I mean, that's a fact. The Christians could kill them with a drop of a hat if that's what they wish to do. The Muslims could kill them with a drop of a hat if that's what they wish to do. It's interesting. And they didn't like them either. And so it's, it's a miracle of survival. That's, uh, the Jews themselves saw this as, as, as a kind of a supernatural kind of event. Uh, and by supernatural, it meant that even though you could give cause and effect reasons, but when it's all said and done, uh, as, they, as they say in the Gemara, the, the question is better than the answer. You know, the, the, it's not a, it's not a uh, satisfying uh, historical answer as to why that didn't happen, but it didn't. So here you have two uh, distinct uh, traditions, two different religions, uh, one uh, growing up with the other, neither one quite understanding the other, each one imagining they understand the other. But the Jews, of course don't really care about what the other one is about. The Christians care very much, as I tried to explain before, what the Jewish thing is all about. But that, of course, is because Christianity views itself as the final expression, the, the proper expression of Judaism, whereas the Jews certainly do not <laughs> see themselves as the proper expression of Christianity, but quite the opposite. They saw Christianity as one of another bunch of nut-sectarian groups that long ago popped up and pop up today within the faith, and they come and go. Thank you. Okay. Now, uh, so this all precipitated until the 1200s, and as I put it before, ignorance is bliss, and therefore if the uh, church authorities and the Christians in general don't know much about the Talmud, and especially all the negative things the Talmud has to say about uh, Jesus or about early Christianity or things of that nature, so the Jews say it's better that way, and uh, then it changed. And as we saw, the change happened in the 1200s, the 13th century, and happened the only way it could happen, which was Mishumadim. That is to say, people who had been Jewish once upon a time, who learned something or other, um, I don't say they were great scholars or whatever, but they learned something or other, and then switched teams. Um, each time they switch a team for a Jew to do that. There's a story behind it, of course, and with Nicholas Donan, as I mentioned last week, there certainly was a story behind it, but uh, it happened. And then his agitation, he's the one who brings to the attention of the Archbishop of Paris, and eventually gets all the way up to the Pope. As we saw in the uh, 1230s, uh, with his famous treatise with 35 complaints against the Talmud, um, not that the 35 are all incorrect at all. And the re end result is that the church is shocked, and the Pope is super shocked, and, and it ends up that they burn all the books. And that puts Judaism, it's a serious dent, uh, as we saw the first times in 1241, then it happens another couple times, and by the time they're finished, 
uh, most of the Jewish books, I'm talking about Gemaras and things like that, are gone. They don't destroy Sefer Torahs, because that's, as I told you before, that's the Old Testament, and they have to respect that as well. But things like the Talmud, or anything associated with the Talmud, they view as a perversion, having nothing to do whatsoever with the Bible, can't understand how smart people like the Jews would get involved with such baloney, and um, they want to do away with it, and they kind of do. And they kind of do. As I said before, uh, from the year 1250 and 1240, 10 years is a giant difference. There are hardly any books around. No printing press in the 1200s. Every book has to be handwritten. You tell me what it means. Now think about this, because tonight's title is the uh, struggle to maintain a literate Jewish culture. Uh, the Jews did not want to descend into a situation in which they're illiterate and have no culture and become something just of legends and, you know, passed down through griots and things like that. But they uh, prided themselves on having the opposite. They viewed themselves as more literate than the people around them. They viewed themselves as more theologically and philosophically sophisticated than the people around them. They were, they weren't, but I'm just telling you the way they viewed themselves. And they uh, certainly viewed themselves as not merely uh, keeping up old customs, but heirs to a very rich uh, intellectual universe. Uh, infinitely rich, actually, uh, as opposed to the other things, which are just hevel v'toh in their, in their minds. You should read the Rambam, uh, who's a perfect example of this, writing in the letter to Yemen. He says, if you, you know, the, uh, it's, it's pitiful the way Christianity and Islam, and he was writing this in Arabic, uh, you know, tr- seek to imitate Judaism, is the difference between a live person and a very good wax dummy in Madame Tussaud. From a distance, it looks like the re- same thing. You get closer, you see it's not. And when you touch it, you definitely see there's a shtickholz, as they say. No, there's nothing in it. Whereas the, but in the other one, it's a living, breathing person. This is the language that they use. So in other words, the Jews are too uppity. They don't behave the way the dominant religion expects them to behave, which is a humble, meek, uh, uh, suitably uh, downtrodden, uh, feeling their disgrace, uh, wallowing in anger, sort of the way most of us have felt in the last couple of days if you didn't get your power, you understand? <laughs> now, with the burning of the Talmud, of course, a line was crossed. Okay? Because, as I tried to point out, it's very interesting, the church itself, back in the 6th century already, had come up with the rule uh, for its, out of its own reasoning. Out of, that's what I'm trying to tell you again and again. This is internal uh, uh, Catholic theology out of its own way of reading the Bible, it comes to rule, you, you, you don't do any physical violence to the Jews. The Sikhu Judaeus, right? That we're, since it is uh, true about the Jews, uh, that, you know, you, that they're so-and-so, um, you can't hurt them, can't kill them, uh, you can't even force them uh, to convert. Uh, their religion is a legitimate religion. Now, it's, it's as I said before, it's perverted, uh, it's nebuch, they don't understand, uh, we have, we have to try to make a car of them with love. This is the language that the popes use. Uh, but you can't hurt them. You can't destroy their synagogue. You can't destroy their cemetery. You, know, you have to give them basic, uh, uh, you know, not li- life and liberty. I don't know pursuit of happiness, but life and liberty. Uh, tomorrow is the 4th of July. But uh, that's very important for uh, the Jews, obviously. And uh, the popes expect that the Jews will little by little blend in. One by one they'll convert. Uh, sooner or later they'll see the truth. Maybe collectively, the truth. it never quite happens that way. You understand? Now, they don't get any kind of numbers. And uh, still, the rules were you're not supposed to do any violence to them. Am I saying that there were no pogroms in the first half of the Middle Ages at all? No, there were from time to time. You're not going to be able to get rid of that. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't with the approval of the church, and therefore it didn't last long. There's all the difference between an a, um, episodic 
a cycle of violence on the one hand, and the Holocaust that we saw in the 20th century, which was sustained. You understand? And then it didn't go away. It just got worse and worse and worse. And when that happens, the Jews, as we know, were not only helpless, but were liquidated. Uh, that sort of thing didn't happen. But on the contrary, in the Middle Ages, there's always episodic violence, which comes and goes. Uh, the Gemara talks about this already. It says, Gzeira Avida de Bateli, that a persecution uh, will be bottled eventually. Notice it, 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 they, they come and they go. Uh, it's like a storm. Uh, they come and they go. So the Rambam says to the Jews of Yemen, hold fast. It's hard now. I'm not you know, belittling that, but stay another five minutes, another ten minutes, and it'll be over, which, which happened. Okay? So um, this kind of attitude is very typical of the Jews. And then in the 1200s, the idea goes like this. Well, we're not going to do violence to the Jewish person, but we do violence to the Jewish book. We take away the Talmud, we take away all their holy books, at least the books that they say are holy, which the church regards as not holy. The Jews say this is the authoritative exposition of the Old Testament. The Christians say, no, it's not. And the result is that there's the destruction of the books. And as I told you, that's the Achilles heel of the Jewish people, because without the books, uh, we're stuck. There aren't too many Vilnagones out there, or Vadiosa, they could just have everything memorized, total recall, like a computer. That's the wonder of the age. Right? The stupor mundi, as they used to call it. But you don't find many people like that. So if we had to rely on that, we'd be in big trouble. And anyway, in the Middle Ages, I'll tell you again, even without the persecution of the church, there's a constant struggle, I repeat, a constant struggle that you have to understand on a daily basis to uh, replace the worn-out books. You get it? There's no printing press. So everybody, I mean literally every literate person, and surely the literate women, and I've said this many, many times, or part of their daily schedule or part of their weekly schedule is they're doing a certain amount of writing and calligraphy because that's just to maintain the supply, for example, in the shul of Sidurim. There weren't that many. It's to maintain the supply in the shul of Hamashim. There aren't that many. And at a higher level, um, if I can use that term, at a higher level, to maintain the supply of um, more sophisticated kind of books, um, what does it take? I mean, just think about this calligraphically. Just think about this in terms of writing it to, for someone in the 1200s or the 1300s or 1400s to write, I mean write, oh, I don't know, uh, a tractate of the Gemara with Rashi on the side and let alone with something like Tosa on the side. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot of words, okay? I mean, just think about that as a physical chore. That's why I say some people are always smirking about it. Uh, the women was really among the main groups of this because it's a constant source of extra income. Here's a lady who has to work in the house because she has three, four, five kids or whatever. In the Middle Ages, the husband is away, uh, as was the case all the time, peddling or doing business elsewhere. Uh, not too much business locally ever. It's the Jewish network trying to uh, uh, bring home the matzah, I guess. And the point is that um, uh, the wife is, is at home. How do you make money? Now, there were many women, we've talked about this, in Ashkenaz at least, there were many women who became captains of industry. We did that last summer, I'm sure many of you remember. Uh, that's an interesting story by itself. You know, these women who ran caravans and all that. But that's not the typical. The typical is you're, you know, a housewife, as they say. And think about what it means at that time in terms of breakfast, lunch, and supper. And I don't mean that to be funny, right? You know, with, with none of the modern appliances over there, they had help, no question about it. There never was a Jewish family that didn't have 
help. This is something, as I told you before, that always bothered the Catholic Church because it's just, They always use that language in the papal bulls that the, uh, the, the, the younger daughter, as they see it, should not be serve, uh, the older daughter should not be serving the younger daughter, even though chronologically the Jews are older, but in terms of theology, the Christian church is the older one, and therefore it's an inversion of the hierarchy for a Christian to do a menial labor uh, for the Jews, and that's what they were doing. Right? Uh, it really was offensive to the Christians that Jews would hire a Christian nursemaid. It was really offensive to the Christians that they would hire uh, to the Christians that Jews would hire someone to clean, to, to to take out the the, the, the toilet or or to uh, take care of the horses and clean all that stuff up. And you know, it's it's really wrong. You know, you, you get what I'm saying? It's real inversion of hierarchy. It really bothers the Christians, as I told you last week, that the Jews shaft the animal, keep the front for themselves, and the rear end they give to the Christians. You see? And so all these kind of things, you know, built up all this kind of resentment. And in the long run, uh, they say a violence against the book can be done. Um, so it's an interesting distinction, though. A violence against people, no. But violence against books and material, uh, yes. Uh, and so, as I say before, 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, it's a battle, constantly. Here's the uh, boys in the yeshiva, the old people who have time, the housewife, the widow, uh, the grandmother in the house. Something you can always do is you write a book, and uh, you're always writing, right? And you, you learn calligraphy. Listen, some people can't do calligraphy well, you know. But if you, have, if you work at it, and you get a good Hebrew script, uh, and especially if you master Rashi uh, Hebrew, you know what I mean, the different types of orthography, really, suppose, you, some, suppose somebody wrote, I mean, suppose a lady who's a housewife, I mean, seriously, uh, went to the trouble to copy out Baba Basra with a Rashi and Tosos or something like that in the 1300s. You get a lot of money for that. Suppose somebody copies out the whole Rambam or a section of it or whatever. I mean, that's worth a lot of money. That's like a, a, a nice side income. So the uh, dexterous uh, female, right, the, the, the one who's, who's, who's very good at writing and all that, and, and is efficient and quick, uh, if you want to know the medieval reality, there's no electricity, it's, it's light, at night the kids are asleep, and she, the husband may be sitting beside her and, and learning something, the wife is sitting beside and writing something. Right? I always, I've said 10,000 times, but I'll say it again, and I know I said it here, my favorite... Uh, in, uh, what is it called? Uh, I forget the expression in, in, in the incunabula. The uh, you know the thing they write at the end is Tom Benishlam. You know, thank God we finished this uh, book up. This is written by me. It's a whole Rambam. It's written by me, Sarah, the daughter of so and so, and so forth. But I want to. Uh, but I want to warn the reader. Uh, I'm not. I can't be responsible for the total accuracy of the copying of the last twenty pages because I'm in my ninth month and I'm having a lot of pains. <laughs> So that's the, that's, that's the medieval reality. Okay? Now, um, problem is, even though there's a distinction between burning books and burning people, uh, how much of a leap is it from burning books to burning people? Remember, burning heretics was par for the course in the Middle Ages. Joan of Arc wasn't Jewish, and she certainly was burned, as a heretic, mind you, and the public loved such spectacles. Now, I want you to understand the medieval mentality. It's not that they were sickos. It's that they really believed in something that we don't get to see today, which is they wanted to see justice really done, and as Foucault so famously put it, that the uh, punishment should be uh, inscribed upon the body of the perpetrator. You get it? So I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Suppose here's somebody that murdered a person. So you say, you hang him. Now here's, a, here's somebody that murdered five people. We're going to hang him too. That's not fair. 
You might as well shoot another five people because you can only hang them once. You get it? So the modern law and the Talmudic law, by the way, says too bad. Uh, that much you give the criminal and you only hang them once. But you can understand, especially if they were friends or relatives of yours, that such a person shouldn't get off so easy just with one hanging. So in the medieval systems of law, they would say like this, if you kill the person, you hang him. You kill two, three people, uh, you beat them up before you hang him. You kill five, 10, 15 people, you roast them, toast them, and then you hang them. If you, if you killed uh, somebody high, in England you draw and quarter them, right? Which I won't even describe because you'll throw up. But, the, uh, but no, but you, you understand what I'm saying? You see the gradations of the punishment appropriate to the crime. And I can tell you right now what people said, like some people would say today. Good, they should put on television and they have less of the crimes if they see what the criminal, you know. That was the, the attitude over there. So burning people is not, you know, shocking. And uh, burning heretics is definitely not shocking. And uh, Jews, fortunately, were not regarded as heretics. They're regarded as special categories, they said before. It's a legitimate religion. It's just a Meshuggah religion. Uh, as I mentioned last week, before I proceed, the Jews were able to persuade the popes after the first burning. It's very remarkable that uh, the way they see it, the Talmud is how they interpret the Old Testament, and they need it in order to operate the laws of the Jewish community. Uh, how they did that, I'm not sure, because even though they bribed them, that, that wouldn't be enough to, to explain it. Uh, he must have said that, you know, this is an ancient custom of the Jews, and they've had a Torah Shabbat some kind or another, uh, for a long, long time, and there are actually a few references in the Old Testament, if you want to look there, uh, to, to uh, um, something of the lines of a Torah Shabbat And anyway, he agreed, and gave out an order, he says, okay, don't burn the Talmuds, but censor them. Because there are things in there that are not objectionable. I'll give you an just crazy. For example, uh, the laws of Shabbos. You have to understand, to a Christian, it's nuts. You get it? It's nuts. Here you can carry, here you can't carry. Uh, can't tie a shoe. I mean, go explain to somebody. You, you understand? And it's Chai Misa Rebore. You can't explain to someone else, they can't understand a thing like that. So that part, uh, you know, is okay, just stupid. But if you have the Agadita, if you have the stories in the Bible about, uh, you know, uh, punishing Christians or something like that, that should not be in there. This is, as we see before, the beginning of a policy where the Jews are going to be writing now with the sword hanging over their head, and uh, maybe to better leave some things out, or maybe ch change the words around, or things of this nature, because you live in a world. Um, in France, by the middle of the 1250s, uh, the t villains that we spoke about last week, Nicholas Donin and the King of France, Louis IX, St. Louis, were triumphant. Uh, their attitude was, um, like St. Louis said, like King Louis said, uh, I'll tell you how you argue with a Jew. Here's what you do. You take a long uh, sword and you shove it right through them, and that's how you win the argument. No, you don't pachka with arguing with them and debating with them. You settle it like that. And that's the upfront direct violence that they apply to the books. Um, but next door is Spain, or the Spanish Peninsula, Iberia. And in, in uh, Spain, um, it was a different reality. It's, it's very interesting the way uh, each country and each culture uh, developed. Uh, Nicholas Donin, this Meshuman, and uh, uh, a fellow yeshivas bacher who converted to Christianity and became a, a uh, fanatical Dominican, uh, Paul, Pablo Christiani, Paul. Uh, that's not what his original name, but Paul is a very Tsugapas name for a, per a Jew who converts to Christianity because St. Paul 
was, according to the New Testament, a from Jew, a Pharisee. And then on the way to Damascus, he got a revelation, and he switched, became an enthusiastic Christian. So, therefore, it's like the Jews take the name of Vadia in the Middle Ages for someone who converts to Judaism, because the Vadia, according to rabbinical tradition, originally was an Edomite and then converts to Jews. So the Jews often take the name Paul. So uh, here you have two ex-Yeshiva guys, Mutt and Jeff, and they go on the road, and they go through Iberia. In other words, they make on a speaking tour, uh, like Billy Graham, uh, all through northern and, and central Spain. Uh, it's no joke if you're Jewish over there. They speak to Jewish crowds, meaning that the Christians um, order the Jews to listen to these. They also speak for Christian crowds. And, of course, what they're advocating for is an end to Judaism in uh, Spain and certainly the books. You see? Uh, once the program proved successful in France, let's apply it to Spain. Here, interestingly, they ran up against a different reality. It's very interesting. The Jews in Spain stood in better with the kings and the queens. Here we have to go back a couple suburbs ago. We talked about Spain just very briefly. Once upon a time, it was a Christian area. Then in the 700s, the Arabs, the Muslims, conquered 95% of Iberia, of the Spanish peninsula. But it's like cancer. You know, either you get it all or you don't. And since, since they left the 5%, interestingly, that 5% is called Galicia. It's not the Galicia of Poland, though. <laughs> uh, since, that, since they didn't get that part, so the Christians were able to consolidate themselves, rally, and then after a little while, they launched a counterattack, which lasted for 800 years. It's called the Reconquista, the Reconquest. I repeat, the Reconquest, which starts in the 700s and ends in 1492. So there's a continual war. Uh, for the Christians to recover, to reconquer the entire area of Spain. There's no country called Spain at that time. There's a dozen or more kingdoms. There's Castile and Aragon, Navarre and Portugal and whatever. But uh, there's a lot of territories over there. But it's one long religious war interrupted by a couple of truces. It's not that there's peace and war is the exception, but the opposite. And that's who Spain is. Now, war is a funny thing. Usually, not always, but usually what it does is it forces a certain type of meritocracy and efficiency. You understand? During the, the novels and history books are full of the fact that an army during peacetime is full of stupid generals and fat officers and this. But then the war comes, and they see what a bunch of fools they are, and then hopefully the country gets its act together, and they fire those guys, and it brings in uh, the right people uh, to do the economy, to do the battlefield, and do all the rest of it, and do the finances. In Spain, because there's a constant wars between the Christians on the one hand and Muslims on the other hand, both sides, and particularly the Christians after the 1100s, say, we need Jewish um, expertise in economic matters. Fighting we can do ourselves, but there's more than fighting. So the Jews have a particular talent in economics. They are uh, very big in the trade, so they bring trade into the area. They're very good at administration, believe it or not, uh, very good at excuse, administration of taxes. Barbell, for example, was a tax administrator. That's what he did. So one guy who set up his own IRS system. Uh, very common customs, you know, the customs houses. Uh, a whole wide variety of these types of talents, um, negotiating with Arab rulers, because the Jews will be, usually be bilingual because they had lived under the Arabs for a while. The Jews will, because they're very mercantile, they know what's going on around the world, they're able to offer international, con no newspapers, they offer international information to the Spanish rulers, to the kings and queens of Castile and Aragon and places like that. And so what you have in Spain is something exceptional in the Catholic world, and that is Jews, a stratum of Jews anyway, over the course of centuries, who actually occupy fairly high positions in the government, which is unthinkable in France, in England, in Germany, in Italy, and places like that. It's just unthinkable. In a Catholic country, it doesn't happen. But in Spain, it happens. I know it's funny because we always think of Spain as 
the most Catholic thing possible, and that's true, but it's also, as I say before, before 1492, the most pragmatic thing possible as well. Why am I bringing all this up? The Jews are in a better position in Spain than they are in France. When they say, go burn the Gomorrahs or burn the Jews or something, it's not going to be so easy because the kings and the queens, for personal reasons, economic reasons, will be more protective of their Jews. On the other hand, the Catholic Church is extremely powerful, and there are many in the Church, not surprisingly, who are advocating already after the 1240s for the destruction of the Talmud and all the books. Kick the Jews where it counts. Get rid of the books. We'll bust them like they did in France. As I told you, the whole Balitosis business went down the tubes in the, in the middle 1200s as a result of the destruction of the books. Uh, you put Lakewood out of business by taking away the books. Let's do it in Spain. You see? And uh, it's, it's, it's a uh, tug of war. Now, in the end, things develop differently in Spain. Instead of burning the Talmud, a different attitude rises, which is really interesting, and that is the attitude which goes like this. Let's take the Talmud master and turn on the Jews and kill them with it. Now, you've got to be pretty doggone self-confident to look at it that way. Because, obviously, there was nobody who was Christian who could read the Aramaic and all that stuff in the Talmud, let alone start to analyze it. But that didn't stop them. The church was on a triumphant roll, and it was, by the time you get to the middle of the 1200s. They had successfully launched the Reconquista, and by, uh, by 1250 was, uh, I would say, 80%. Something like that. 75-80% of Spain was back under Christian control. So they were on a roll. And the church produced a lot of very, very impressive Catholic intellectual and theological figures in the 12-1300s. You can't deny it. And these people were sure that God is on our side and that we can, the truth will, you know, <laughs> like Emil Zola, the truth is on the march and nothing can stop it. Of course, it's my truth. And they're so confident that they said, you don't have to do like in France and burn the stuff. Get people to read it. Uh, this guy you see over here, now you can tell that Howard is here, so... I think I just put it in order. Okay, it, it'll be fine. As I said, I told everybody beforehand, tonight we're, tonight we're going to be Hamas. Which guy? The, uh, Raymond Penaforte, the one you had before. Yeah, this is, if you can see, he's a famous Catholic, very famous individual, the leading Catholic priest, I would say, in the middle of the 1200s, a person who, uh, is, a person who is able, um, as they say before, to establish two yeshivas if I can use that term, to train Catholic clergy. One, to teach them Islam, the other one to teach them Judaism. Obviously, the priests, who now know Islam, will then go into the Arab world and preach and show them from the Koran that Christianity is true. That, my friends, is a good challenge. Right? Second of all, it's also a suicide note. But, you know, the type of people that we're talking about are the real faithful. And they don't mind to die death of a martyr. And they'll do it. And uh, uh, if you remember last week, Peter is venerable in France. Uh, the abbot of Cluny had already had the Koran translated into Latin, but everybody knew it wasn't a great translation. He's got these guys learning with Arabs, the whole real Arabic, so they can master the Koran and then try to prove the truth of Christianity from the Koran. That is a real challenge. And from the Hadith, you know, from their Gemara and everything like that. He also has a school for Judaism. How are you going to do that? This is a testament to the idea when there's a will, there's a way. You see to a degree. Because what they obviously did was they must have learned with other Mishumadim, other Jews who had converted. You must have had enough of a supply of ex-Yeshiva guys. Think about that. Because in Spain you do. Enough of a supply of ex-Yeshiva guys who will teach them. And this a group of priests in this school, which Raymond of Penafort set up, uh, will go through, I mean, it's, just a, it's mind-boggling. They go through the entire Talmud. 
the Mishnah, the Tosefta, Mechilta Sifra and Sifri, Talmud Babli, Talmud Shabi, Medish Rabbatan Chumba, Pekar you name it, you know, Elvis Rabbatan, I mean, the whole thing. All of what we call the writings of Chazal, and uh, mind you, I, I mean, I know, I can, I'm pretty sure I know exactly what happened. When you have basis in Old Beyontov, you know, they don't spend too much time with that. It was the Machlokas of, uh, you know, Tumah Hudrabatsib or Tumah Balua, they're not spending too much time with that. That they consider the inanities of Judaism. Of course, on the other hand, if you find a part that says, kill a Krishna or something like whatever, uh, or it says that Jesus is burning and boiling excrement, that you circle, you see? And the result is, or, or if you find a passage which you can, which in their, in their reading, because remember, you can't bring someone else's reading to your book. Is that true? You, know, you read a, a letter from your family, you know what it means. Your relatives will say, hi, you jerk, what's new? And you know, and you know they don't mean anything bad by it. But someone else will read and say, oh my goodness, what's it? it's, a, it's a war. You see, but it's not true. So they bring their reading to it, and they will find many passages in the Talmudic literature, halachic, mostly agadic, in which they say, oh, this proves the truth of Christianity, or this proves Jesus or, 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 or Mary, or, or, or something along those lines. Um, the, his star pupil is Raymond Martini, Ramon Martin, we have a picture of him, who writes a book, which is an amazing uh, work, um, called Pugio Fidei, I think I mentioned in the past, which is the dagger of faith. You get what I'm saying? We're going to take this dagger and plunge it into the bosom of Judaism. That dagger is the Talmud, properly interpreted. Right? They're going to kill Judaism using the Talmud. In fact, he uses as his, as his head Pusik, I think it says it, if I'm not mistaken, of Benelli ben Yoyara, one of the warriors, the heroes of King David, who battled a giant, and the giant had a, a, a big spear or something like that, and he says he seized the spear from the giant and killed him with it. So you get the point, right? You know, the Pugio of the day is going to take the Talmud and, and show how Judaism is false with it. Uh, Raymond Martini was a big anti-Semite. He writes in the end, he says, I did this book, spending my time looking for diamonds in the dung heap. Okay? And uh, because he's got to explain it. It's a fat book. Um, I actually looked online today. There's a thing called Pugiofidei.com or something, whatever. But it's just some Catholic attacking Judaism. <laughs> so he's following in the tradition, but he didn't do it. It's a fat book, and it's, um, and it's quite remarkable as a testament, a testimony to the uh, will, the power of will to convert the Jews. You understand? There's a guy who hates this stuff will go through whole shots. Think about that. Uh, <laughs> whole shots just to undermine it. You know, it's, 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 it's like the great explorers that went through the deserts and the jungles in order to do this kind of stuff. Um, I, there is, there's a delicious irony I always like to point out in all this because um, in the 20s, what happened was like this. He wrote it, it's all in Latin, and it's supposed to be, then in the 20s, that it's supposed to be a manual for priests. And now when you, I send you as a galch, you go to talk to the Jews, read this book, it's all in Latin, they have quotes everywhere from the Talmud and such things, and then you use the right quotes, and then you'll be able to convert the Jews. But it's so big and so unwieldy that only somebody's fanatical, like Ramon Martini, and you know, who's super devoted to the cause, is going to do it. The average priest in the Middle Ages isn't so literate, and the average priest in the Middle Ages, the average one, is not so sophisticated. And he basically says, like St. Louis, I'll argue with the Jews, you know, using a sword. You know, you know, I've got the time to go through all this kind of stuff. And anyway, the Jews allowed arguing will say it's not the right translation, or whatever it is. In the, in the middle of the 20th century, the famous Professor Saul Lieberman, uh, who was in Slovak, and they went to the conservatives in the Jewish Theological Seminary, was a very great scholar. You know, he knew all of Shas by heart, I mean, literally by heart, and that sort of thing, and was a great historian, or philologist might be the better word, because philology, of course, involves um, the study of 
ancient gearses and texts and things like this and what their realia are. That's what he's into. And so he's one of those people, uh, which is not popular in the Shiva world, it ought to be, but it isn't, which is how do you know the text you have in front of you is really the text of the Gemara. And uh, we don't have old copies of the Talmud. Well, gee whiz, I wonder why after they burned all the stuff. But even, even without that, they wear out. We don't physically have many old copies of either Sefer Torah, we don't, or of a Talmud or anything like that. Um, so if you find one going back to the 1200s or something like that, it's kind of interesting. And he has a book and a, and a, and a whole set of um, magazines called Shki'in, from the word Shakua. It's sunk in there. And basically, he's, <laughs> he's doing a pugia for day on the pugia for day. I'll tell you what I mean. He said like this. That the guy is against Judaism, I don't care. But here you have a priest who is obviously copying from some text of the Talmud into Latin in the 1200s. We don't have many accurate copies of the Talmud 1200s. If I read an Agatha, for example, the way he describes it in the Latin, it's not so hard for the Latin to retrace the original Hebrew-Aramaic. Then we have an old Girsa, which can help us clarify the Girsas that we have in the Talmud today. So he's taking Raymond Martini and sticking it to him, right, to advance the cause of the Talmud, and so there's no end to the ironies of history. But the climax of a Catholic Talmud campaign, of course, therefore is not the burning of the books, but rather the great challenge to debate in Barcelona in 1263 between the Ramban on the one hand and Pablo Cristiano on the other hand, this Paul guy, who, let's face it, you've got to give the guy A for effort, because if he's taking on the Ramban on the Talmud, that means that's how, that's how uh, strong he was. Ordinarily, you wouldn't believe such thing is possible, but if you go into YouTube, you'll see a Jew for Jesus go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, maybe some of you have seen this, and try to handle him. It's amazing. And even give him a book that he wrote, Right? And the Lubavitcher Rebbe used to say to him, <laughs> let's put it this way, that takes guts, you know? And the Lubavitcher Rebbe is saying, you're, he was a former Jew, a Russian Jew, he's now converted. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe is saying, you are sick, you are sick. And the guy says, no, I feel great. The fact that you feel great is the sign that you are sick, you know what I mean? And it's a whole, it's a whole to do. Of course, there's no violence, but he said, but, but still, you know, that guy gets the A for effort, I would say. Now, um, so here they have this famous debate, or Vikuach, as they call it over here, in 1263, um, there is a famous, I know, I'm sure some of you know this, there's a famous, I, I, hope, we, I hope this works, uh, um, Hollywood, a BBC production called The Disputation, where they do their own body. Some of it is, is not real. In other words, some is just dramatized, and some of it is. The part that I'm going to show you right now, so we're going to take a few minutes, that's the king of Aragon, in, in whose presence the uh, debate is going to be held, Disputation, if you want. He was a friend of the Jews. If he wasn't a friend of the Jews, he would have done like St. Louis and just killed him. If it wasn't for the Jews, we would have burned the books. You, you understand? On the other hand, he's a Catholic. Uh, on the other hand, he's always having a fight with the Pope because he's like Henry VIII. He had several wives at the same time. And they, they, it, 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 he, him and the Pope didn't see eye to eye with that. Let's, put, let's leave it at that. The uh, point is, you, you can Google him on your own. But the point is that, um, and he was a great conqueror. He doubled, he doubled the size of Aragon. He's one of these kings in the middle of the 1200s that conquers a significant piece of territory from the Muslims. Okay, so he's a, 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 I would say, actually, it's very likely he was among the greatest of the kings of Aragon. Aragon is the eastern part of Spain where Barcelona and Valencia is. And uh, even Ramban describes him as a, in a positive way. So 90% of what you're about to hear in this piece, which is going to go for about five, six minutes, I hope you pay attention to it. Uh, I know some of you, have, I'm sure, have seen it one time or another. 90% of what you're going to hear is accurate. 10% is not accurate. But I, excuse me, but they do capture, in my opinion, the flavor of it, because the, the, uh, the text was written, uh, the, the screenplay uh, was written by Chaim Maccoby, 
used to be a professor in Oxford, and he wrote the book, Judy's Montreal, about the Vikur Haramban. So uh, 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 just very briefly, you're going to see the, the king, maybe the queen. Uh, you're going to see uh, uh, Ramban is this guy with a, with a Welsh accent. The, uh, <laughs> well, we all know, you know, the Ramban came from Wales. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> Uh, you'll see Pablo Cristiani, it's not a yarmulke, it's all it, it shaved. And you'll see Raymond de Penaforte, also the older guy. And, uh, and you'll see the play back and forth. I, I'm showing you this, not simply to have so much, a little bit of fun. I do want to have a little bit of fun. But, but uh, three weeks have not started yet. But, but I want to do it because it's going to capture the spirit, particularly when somebody who's not Jewish tries to do, and I want to just set the ground with this, tries to do what I just told you before. I'm not going to debate with you psukim in the Old Testament to prove the truth of Christianity. I'm going to prove to you, he argues, I'm going to prove to you from the Talmud itself the truth of Christianity. And I'm going to say, you, you will? <laughs> That's very interesting. And, and, but do remember that this is the difference between Spain and France in the Middle Ages. The church is so confident in this, and they have guys like him that, you know, of course the Ramban is going to be blown away, and of course when it's all over, he's going to take his yarmulke off and say, sign me up! You see? And it'll be a little disconcerting if this doesn't exactly happen. So without any further ado, let's see if we can do it. That's the court in Barcelona, of course, and they're going to have the disputation. Take it away. No majesties. That's Raymond of Penaforte. Lord, by order of his Christian majesty, King James, we begin today a disputation between Christianity and Judaism. His Majesty's object in holding this disputation is to draw his Jewish subjects to Christ by reason and persuasion. Right, not by force. Speaking for Christianity, Brother Pablo Christiani, and for Judaism, Rabbi Moses Ben Nachman. Rabbi Moses. I too believe that reason is alone sufficient to settle these matters. As my first contribution, I should like to suggest certain lines on which the discussion should proceed. I suggest we should devote ourselves to two questions, which in my view are the most vital. This really happened. What are they? The first question is, is the Messiah come, or is he yet to come? The second question, is the Messiah prophesied in scriptures a man or a divine being? You agree with this proposal, Brother Pablo? I do, Your Majesty. I'm sorry, sir, we have reached agreement on procedure so rapidly. There is one point I wish to raise, Your Majesty. Yes. Rabbi Moses has referred to prophecy in Scripture, but not to the Talmud. If I may explain, the Talmud is the book of Jewish traditions which date to a time long before the birth of Christ. It explains the laws and stories and prophecies of the Old Testament in such a thoroughgoing way that the Jewish faith without it would be shorn of a great deal of its content. It is my contention that the Talmud also proves that the divine Messiah has come. Rabbi Moses, do you agree that the Talmud should be brought into this discussion? I have no objection, Your Majesty. However, I should like to give Brother Pablo a friendly warning, which may save him a great deal of time and trouble. It is simply that we Jews do not always agree with everything we find in the Talmud. But do you not accept that the Talmud is a holy book? To the Jews. I do, but the Talmud is a record of discussions. These discussions took place between rabbis over the course of about 500 years on every aspect of Jewish religion. Obviously, when two rabbis disagree, which happens on every page of the Talmud, both cannot be accepted as right. 
Consequently, many sayings in the Talmud are not accepted by the Jews. I see. Not only, Your Majesty, there is another point to be considered. Yeah. It is only the legal parts of the Talmud, the halakha, that Jews consider binding. The non-legal parts, the Haggadah, the poetical, and open to various interpretations, are not considered binding. The subject of the Messiah belongs to the poetical part of the Talmud. This is a very strange holy book. The Talmud is a holy book but not what Christians mean by a holy book. But what about the Bible? Do you not accept that the Bible is a holy book? More so, even, than the Talmud? Yes, but then, we are seldom sure what the Bible means. That is what the discussions in the Talmud are all about. It seems that you are going to be rather difficult to pin down in this discussion. <laughs> Brother Pablo, can you elicit from the rabbi a clear statement? I shall do my best, Your Majesty. Now, Rabbi Moses, I think you have been exaggerating the flexibility of the Jewish religious attitude a little. I was a Jew myself for many years, and your description of Judaism doesn't quite tally with my recollection of it. Perhaps you have forgotten something since you became a Christian. I don't think so. Or perhaps there were certain things about Judaism that you never understood. Tell me. Is there such a thing as heresy in Jewish religion? Yes, there is. And what is a heretic in Jewish law? A Jew who denies an essential principle of the Jewish faith. And what are the essential principles of the Jewish faith? That is a matter of dispute. <laughs> sure, there are some articles of the faith beyond dispute. There are some, yes. The unity of God is one, the revelation on Mount Sinai another. But we have no agreed and definitive set of theological doctrines as you Christians have, for which you are prepared to burn people as heretics. Is it not true, Rabbi Moses, that you Jews give great respect to the recorded sayings of the rabbis, even though they may not necessarily be fully authoritative? That is so. If you found that many sayings of the rabbis point to the conclusion that the Messiah has already come, and that he is divine, would this fact impress you? It certainly would. I propose to prove that many sayings in the Talmud show unmistakably both that the Messiah has already come, and that his nature is divine. If you can prove that, you will have struck a great blow for your side of this disputation. <laughs> is, has the Messiah come? Father Pablo, your majesty is. Let me begin by citing a passage not from the Old Testament, but from the Talmud. The Talmud says, at the time when the temple was destroyed, the Messiah was born. What an extraordinary statement. The temple was destroyed about 1,200 years ago, around about the time of the beginning of Christianity. Now, let me put the question directly to Rabbi Moses. Why are the Jews waiting for the Messiah when their own Talmud tells them that he came 1,200 years ago? What do you have to say to this, Rabbi Moses? Your Majesty, with respect to Brother Pablo, 
The Talmud does not say that the Messiah came at the time of the destruction of the temple. It only says he was born there. But isn't that much the same thing? No, Your Majesty. When Moses came to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, it was 80 years after he was born. That was hardly a task for a newborn babe. Similarly, the date of the Messiah's birth is by no means the same as the date of his coming. And when will be his coming? When he leads the Jews back to the Holy Land. That hasn't happened yet, so he hasn't yet come. Do you mean to tell us that the Messiah was born 1,200 years ago and that he still hasn't come yet? I was beginning pretty long in the truth then, 1,200 years old. Adam lived almost as long as that. And Elijah, who never died, has lived very much longer and will return together with the Messiah. Where has the Messiah been all this time? The Talmud says in the Garden of Eden. Do you really believe that? Many more incredible things than that are believed in the name of religion, Your Majesty. I personally do not believe that the Messiah was born at the time of the destruction of the temple. I think he has not yet been born. But the Talmud says quite distinctly that he was born then. It is poetry, a parable. You Christians know what parables are. It's a way of saying that hope is born in the very depths of despair. It should not be taken literally. Are you saying that the Talmud is telling lies? The parable is not a lie. But Rabbi Moses, you are shifting your ground. Not at all. If you want to take literally that the Messiah was born, then I have given you my answer. I personally do not take it literally. That's clear enough, surely? That's it. The, um, I think that's, that, that passage there actually did happen. Now, if you look, what I mean by that is, it's taken from a book called the Bikur Karamban, which he wrote, which you can get. You know, it's online, I'm sure. And uh, it's translated in English as well. And that's an example of what I've been trying to explain to you. They read it their way, we read it. It's, it's two ships passing in the night. They're not really having a discussion, are they? Each one's trying to score points against the other. It's like Obama having a debate with Romney. It's not about, you know, elucid elucidating the issues of the day. It's about soccer to him, you know. And it, don't be surprised, therefore. By the way, that's a famous argument of the Ramban, which is, he says over there, he says, I don't take the Agathas literally. Okay? Uh, many have, you know, uh, over the centuries, many have tried to analyze. Did he mean it? Did he just say because there's a debate? Is it this, that, and the other? I don't know. But let's put it this way. One of the great issues that we have in the Jewish religion, of which usually they don't fight about, they did fight about it in the Ramban's time, to be honest, in the 1200s, but usually they fight about it is, what is literal and what is not literal in the Bible and the Talmud? Okay? Because there's no key for answering that question authoritatively. You get what I'm saying? There's no key to tell us which part is literally true, which isn't. I'll just give you one example. Shira Shirim, didn't get into the Bible and the Talmud, and they don't think it's a literal story, a boy and a girl, uh, lovey-dovey. It's a parable. But how you know? Uh, and they say, well, it can't be. Once you apply to the, the canon of it can't be, then it becomes a subjective business. If somebody says, oh, I can't believe that Avram was 100 years old or so or 90 years old, it's a parable. Or he didn't really split the rest of the, it's a parable. Or the, the Billum, in this week's parish, the Billum's uh, donkey thought, it's a parable. There were fights over this in the 1200s. Usually Jews didn't, never got into this. They say like you say there, whatever it means, you know. Uh, the Ramban says this, Ramam says that. The Maral, I'm serious, the, the Maral has another shita. There are many drachim, and, and, and we're not finished with them either. There are many drachim in understanding agaratas and things of this nature. As I said before, the Maral is currently very popular 
and the uh, yeshiva world plays like it. The Ramchal, Roshachim Mutsato, has his way. There's no such thing as one uh, individual sort of way. You'll, you'll be, you won't be shocked to find that if you find a Kabbalistic interpretation of Agatha, it's not going to be the same thing as a Rambam, as a Maimonidean interpretation of Agatha. And so what? But the Christians are hyped over this because we have to have exact doctrine. That's the way the Christian, Christian religion uh, arose. When it's all over, I don't want to get too far into this. I simply want to point out, as you see from this little passage uh, that, that, that I shared with you over here, that the debate itself was precisely over the question of whether or not the Talmud, um, you know, uh, proves Christianity or not. They weren't moving to the level of burning it. And uh, as, as a sign of the confidence of the Catholic Church, it's also one of the reasons they don't get around to burning the book. Uh, you'll be shocked to learn that when it's all over, and after three days, Ramban said, this isn't going anywhere, and the crowds are getting nervous, and Christians really don't want to hear this. In the Middle Ages, everybody's Catholic. They don't want to hear anybody uh, saying anything that could remotely insult Christianity, and I don't blame them. And at one point in the debate, if you follow it through, Ramban loses his temper. Usually he's very calm, at least that's the way he's portrayed. He's very calm and all the rest. At one point, he kind of loses his temper because the king says, why don't you believe this stuff? And he gives a whole long, what for a Christian would be a rant, in which he basically says something along the following lines. You can't get angry if I don't believe a misa, a story. You understand? Uh, the Christian religion is not a logic thing, it's a story. If I told you that someone was flying over the roof last night, it might be true, it might not be true. Probably it's not true. You can't get angry at me if I say I don't believe it without any kind of proof. You see? And he says to the king, you were born in this really, you were brainwashed in it, so naturally you buy into all the ideas of the virgin birth, the immaculate conception, the, 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 the resurrection, all that. I got no problem with that. But don't get angry at me, who wasn't raised in your way, that you're skeptical about it. And oh, that, that nobody wanted to hear that. Raymond Penafort didn't want to hear that in the Middle Ages, obviously. And so when a few days over, they, uh, they, they stopped the debate in the middle. Uh, naturally, everybody goes into spin control. The, the Catholic Church puts out a version of, which, is, which you can get today, a Latin version. We won. Ramban responds by writing a book in Hebrew. We won. Uh, books are tricky businesses. Uh, when the book gets out, the Dominicans, who hate the Jews with a passion, uh, say, oh, here's a guy who actually wrote a book against Christianity, where there are certain statements in the course of the debate which certainly don't say positive things about Christianity. They never quite say negative, but don't say positive things about Christianity. It gets to the Pope. The Pope write, uh, writes to the king. He says, burn this guy. Uh, the Pope had promised the Ramban, it's very famous, uh, freedom of speech, first of all, and freedom of person. You can say what you want, and I'll make sure nothing happens to you. Uh, I'm the king, I'm the boss, and nobody orders me around. Uh, however, when he gets a letter from the Pope, he calls the Ramban in from Garona to Barcelona, and he says, I guess, I lied. <laughs> no, I, I can't keep, the pressure is bigger than I thought, and I can't stop this. The only thing I can do is already a warrant out for you, and all this. The only thing I can do is put it through the legal machinery and delay everything by a month or two, you know, till, till, till the warrants go out. And so, hit the road. Get out of here. Uh, I'm sorry. It's famous. He said, I'm sorry about this. You know, I, I didn't want it to happen this way, but it's not going to be good. So, leave now before the judicial process takes its uh, toll. And, uh, and that's why the Ramban leaves and goes to Israel. He didn't leave overnight, but he left shortly there afterwards. And the king even gave him like 500 uh, Maravedis, a certain amount of money, as a token, and he famously said, I never saw a wrong cause so well defended. You see? Which is as good as you're going to get, you know, from a Catholic monarch. But the week after the, the Shabbos, after the debate was over, the king himself comes to the synagogue in Barcelona, it's in the Bikur Ramban, and makes a whole speech to try to explain to Jews 
that don't think Christianity is Avodah Zarah, is paganism, because the Trinity doesn't really mean three gods, it means three sides of one, and, all, and the Ramban says that he made it his business to be in Shul that week, even though he didn't live in that town, to confute the king, and he said, no, it means such and such and so on and so forth, which once again is rather remarkable that in Spain, at least in the time of King James I, the king is willing to tolerate this amount of dissent, right, uh, from, from, from a Jew, and um, uh, it speaks well, but the aftermath is not so simple, because at the end of the day, uh, the Christians win in the sense that the Ramban has to hit the road, as I say before. Um, the king allows uh, laws for conversionist sermons. Some of you were with me in Italy, where you go next to every, get adjacent to every ghetto is a church, and that church is there for the purposes that all the Jews have to supply a, a supply of Jews every Sunday, uh, without fail, uh, to listen to sermons, um, to preach Christianity to them, it's a, it's, it's a Catholic law. We're not to force you to convert, but you have to hear the truth. And in Italy, the Jews do have all kinds of tricks, like putting wax in their ears, but there are uh, Catholic shamash and beetles with sticks, and they hit them over the head if they have wax in the ears, so you have to listen, and you know some of them fall asleep. Uh, none of these preachers seem to have been very persuasive, but that wasn't the point. Now, um, what's the uh, idea over here? Um, now it gets hard for the books. Because when it's talking about conversion of sermons, when it's talking about mob action, even the king won't really allow mob action to get violent, where is it going to go? Um, the court Jews, and I told you, in Spain, you had Jews who are rich and powerful and all this kind of stuff, they were in with the king. Uh, they are a, a constant battle using their particular methods, in other words, money, um, to fight. But from 1263 on, for another 130 years, it's a constant tug of war what's going to happen with the Jews. Two factions in court. The pro-Jewish side means the ones that are friendly to them because they do business with them, and they say to the king, uh, don't, don't allow the church to have its full way. Then you have the other side, the super from Catholic, and they say, lower the boom on them, literally. Uh, worst of all, there's a growing number in Spain of Mishumadim, uh, some famous, I mean, you may be surprised to hear, some famous rabbis in Spain, in the late 12, and particularly in the 13, 1400s, convert to Christianity. Uh, the pressure was enormous. Uh, people, you, you'd be surprised. You see certain names in the Shalos and Shubas, and later on they find that they became uh, the priests. Uh, and they can read Talmudic literature, and therefore they're really dangerous, and they can debate better than this Pablo Cristiano guy uh, did. Um, but notebooks are burned in Spain down to 1492. Uh, Moranos are burned, uh, but books are not burned over there. Uh, there's a very important distinction, because the Catholic Church, even in Spain, uh, takes the uh, point of view that those Jews who converted, even if it was converted by force, in 1391, we'll talk about it a little bit later, um, they have to remain Christians. But those Jews who, for one reason or another, were not forced to convert to Christianity until 1492 are allowed to practice Judaism, allowed to practice their religion, read their books, and all that sort of thing. Uh, except that, of course, in 1492, they said, just kick them all out, the, the unconverted Christians. But the book's not. On the other hand, um, there's an increasing anti-Semitic climate that characterizes the second half of the Middle Ages. All the historians know. Middle Ages, two halves, A and B. Up to A, in the A part, wasn't so bad, the church had bigger fish to fry, they weren't spending all their time concentrating the Jews. By the time you get to the 1200s, it's a different story. And then they slowly but surely, over the 12, 13, 1400s, turned the uh, uh, pressure up on the Jews, so that there's a process in which the Jews are expelled from Europe, from almost all Europe. It, it doesn't work. Because as I told you before, the kosh is better than the terrorists. There's no real reason for the Catholics, especially when they're militating for a totally all-Catholic society, which I don't blame them, uh, will allow this other group 
of the Jews, uh, who they really don't like, to remain in there. It doesn't work. And so you find, in the second half of the Middle Ages, the violence increases and the expulsions increase. Edward I, do we have him here? Yeah. The famous Edward Longshanks starts burning the Gemaras in England in 1286. Four years later, he expels the Jews, of, kicks them out of England. He's the one that sets the example for other kings. The Jews are not allowed back in England until Oliver Cromwell's time, 400 years later. Then, a few years later, in 1306, Philip IV, the famous uh, French king, who was a real son of a gun, uh, yeah, that's him, Philip the, Philip the Handsome, Philip the Bell, right? Uh, <laughs> expels the Jews from France, who have no books. He burned them all, his father burned them all. Uh, in 1306, they're all arrested, and on Tishabov, they're kicked out of the country with the clothes on their back, meaning all the money, everything they had, is taken. The king says it's terrible, the usury rates that the Jews are ripping off the peasants, but when he kicks them out, he, the king says, I guess, pay the usury to me. <laughs> okay? um, the Jews, by the way, flee to places like, uh, just immediately outside of France, like Burgundy and Savoy. Some of us were in Italy, and if you go to Venice, one of the places they'll show you is a synagogue of all kinds of shoals in the ghetto, some active and some no longer active, and one of them is a French shoal. And we were talking about it. It's not Ashkenaz exactly, but it is Ashkenaz. But it's not Yekisha, it's French. You say, what's that? You ever hear Rashi? <laughs> Rashi was not, a German, was not a German Jew. There was an Ashkenaz that predates the Germans. And so there's a Nusus Sarfas. It's rare. You only find it in Italy. And they have their own little dominant differences and their own little this difference and that differences. And you've had it also in Turin. If you go today to Torino, the, the population there is originally from France, kicked out over there. Nine years later, the next French king, Louis X, wherever he is, Louis X invites the Jews back for economic reasons. All of a sudden, the peasants are saying, Jews are not so bad. The Christians who came and took their place, instead of charging 10% interest, are charging 50% interest, and they're ripping us to shreds. Literally, the Jews are not so bad as we thought. He allows them in. The Jews say, uh, we're not coming back in unless we're allowed to bring our Talmuds, our books. Okay? The king says, no problem. Uh, for economics, I'll do anything. Just don't get involved in um, discussion of religion with, with Christian laymen. That's what he said. Don't use the Talmud to start asking questions about Christianity. But it doesn't matter because within a few years, the head of the Inquisition in France, Bernard of Guy, uh, tr holds a trial of the Talmud, despite what the king said, and the Talmud is found guilty and is condemned to burning, and he starts burning whole wagon loads again of swarm in 1319 and 1321, and the Pope supports him, and the king of France will not get in the way. And so once again, France is like cursed. You understand? That's the place of burning the Jewish books. That's how it goes. Uh, and therefore, Judaism is very handicapped in the 1300s. Finally, in 1394, you get this guy. Uh, he's the Charles VI of, of France, mentally ill. You think I'm making fun of it? Look at the next picture. The French have a famous scene where he goes on a spaz in a hunting uh, uh, expedition. Uh, he, he literally was mentally ill. And this is the guy who kicks the Jews, you know, he, he strung his uh, knife and spear to people around him. You know, he had spasm, no, I don't, you know. We can't analyze from 500 years, 600 years later, but he has serious mental issues. And he's the one who totally expels all the Jews from France and the heck with the economy and all the rest of it. And, uh, and of course, when that happens, then, you know, that's the end of Judaism altogether in France. After this, the Talmuds are not attacked. The Jews are. We find a whole wave of violence in uh, spreading across Europe, low level, which recalls very much the situation, for those who follow the news, of the Christian Arabs in the Middle East today. It's never a huge pogrom, it's always small ones. They're always breaking someone's windows, killing somebody, raping a girl, destroying it. And so what, if you, I know many of you follow the news. What is happening to the Christians in Palestine, in Syria, the Coptics in Egypt, and all the rest of it? 
the media don't want to talk about it. The media want to talk about what Israel is doing wrong. But those who are intelligent can read also what the Muslims are doing, not to the Jews, to the Christians among them, and you can't stay. It, it just doesn't work. This is the situation of the Jews in the 12, the 13, and 1400s, uh, except they have nowhere to go. Now we see the rise of the blood libel. Now we see the, all over the place. Now we see the rise of what they call the host desecration. Because if you're Catholic, you believe, main part of Catholic uh, davening is uh, the, the wafer and the wants. And this is the, liter, literally, not a uh, figuratively. This is a, the Catholic, uh, one of the seven main principles of Catholicism, the transubstantiation, that the wafer becomes the body of Jesus and the wine becomes the blood. I mean, I don't know how to work it out. I mean, they know it's blood, but, but it, it, mystically, it really happens. No, but I'm serious, it really happens. And um, one of the things that you always find now in the 12, 13, 1400s is a Jew stabbed the wafer and caused it to bleed. We broke the wafer in half and, and, and the wafer cried. And don't smirk. The reason I say don't smirk is every time that happens, a pogrom, people get killed. It's not funny. I understand, you know, but it's not funny because it had terrible consequences. Uh, the Jew now appears in European culture in the second half of the Middle Ages in the literature, in the paintings, as the devil incarnate, as a pig, as everything loathsome and uh, disgusting. In other words, the demonization of the Jew was in full swing as a preparation for eventually expelling them. It's got nothing. We've moved past books. You understand? It's not an issue of books anymore. It's an issue of, of people. There's a sto slow and steady drumbeat of Billy Grahams and Farrakhan's running all over the place. I'm not going to give you the whole, the whole, all, all the names of the famous Franciscan and Dominican and other friars and priests that run all over the place. And they're, unfortunately, they're good at what they do. And by the time they're finished, the crowd is ready to run and kill the Jews, and they often do. You see? Um, and then, as you know, the old line, we were suffering, we were poor, and then came the Depression. So here you have all this kind of stuff, and then came the Black Death. In, in 1348 to 1350, which you know what that is. The bubonic plate spread all over the place. I myself don't understand exactly what it was, but doctors here will tell you. But you all know it carried off half the population. It was a terrible way of dying. And um, what happens is, you're looking for scapegoats. Now, the idea that medicine in the 14th century was not fully, totally advanced, was beyond consideration. After all, this is 1350, you know, this is not 1050, so obviously we're in the cutting edge of medicine. But of course, their medicine was, of course, completely wrong, and so they never figure out what it's about. So when you look for scapegoats, when you look for causes of it, you're not going to look at rats and things like that, and, 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 and you know, germs, because they never heard of germs, but you look at uh, minorities such as the Jews, and it's God's punishment to you because you allowed the Jews in you, and therefore you end up with these are famous scenes where they're burning the Jews in there. Listen, there's another one where they're burning the Jews in Brussels, because after all, you've got to get rid of the bad health menace. You understand? These are the reasons there's a plague in the town. Now, what happens when the plague continues to rage after they got it? It's, it's a good question. <laughs> the Pope, believe it or not, at Clement VI in Avignon, issues two bulls in this period of 1348 to 1351. The Pope, where he says, don't do this. Whoever thinks it's the Jews' fault is being seduced by the devil. You know what I'm saying? The Pope says, leave the Jews alone. But it doesn't work. Right? I'll, I'll repeat it again. This was, fortunately, this is all men of Shemayim. The Catholic Church, at the level of the Pope, never bought into the blood libel. They never bought into the host desecration. And they never bought into the Jews as poison or the wells. Because if they had, my friends, it, it'd be all over. They would have killed everybody. So it didn't happen. But it's not a great time to be. Uh, the Jews... Therefore, you see, had no choice but to bet on the ruling elites. So you're living in a town where everybody hates your guts except the duke or the duchess or the princess. 
and she has the guards in the army. That's not a healthy situation, right? Because as soon as something breaks down, the, the mob's going to come and kill you, and uh, the Jews lost the broad public to the Billy Grahams and the, and the Farrakhans. And in Spain, in 1391, is the best example of this, because the church was against pogroms, and they break out all over Spain spontaneously. We talked about it in the past. 50% of the Jews in Spain are attacked by mobs and converted against their will. All kinds of screwball situations arise. Remember I told you one brother was in Park Heights and one brother was in Ricetown Road, and the one in Park Heights happened to be attacked by a mob and was forced to convert. The other one happened not to be in that block and wasn't, and now they come home when it's all over. You end up with all that kind of business. The 15th century is more of the same. So second half of the Middle Ages does not usually make for edifying reasoning, uh, uh, reading. On the other hand, on the other hand, and this is the point I want to really hammer home today with as much force as I can. Um, what, what are the Jews doing? You say, like oh, they're downtrodden, they're beaten, their culture is collapsing, all the rest of it. No, it's a, this is the period of the Rishonim. The second half of the Rishonim. I'll just give you an example. In Spain, right through all this junk, you have people like the Rajbo and the Ritfo, uh, you know, famous names like that. In Ashkenaz, you have the later Tosafists. Uh, we have, uh, you know, f- famous names, let's put it that way. Uh, flourishing Yeshiva, it's hard to believe. Uh, you see, in all that atmosphere, uh, because the Jews had great reserves, as I said before, from their internal culture, this is when Pilpul starts. Now, this is what we call today Lambdas, the Yeshiva Shalomdas, and the German Yeshivas. Uh, in other words, the, in, Nurem, in places saturated with anti Semitism, in Regensburg, and Nuremberg, and Augsburg, and South Germany, they even invented different types of Yeshiva uh, Lambdas. Like today, today, the Telzer Derech, the Brisker Derech. At that time, I'm, I'm serious. At that time, you used to call it the Augsburg Derech, the Nuremberg Derech. And, and, and all that sort of thing. And how can you do it? How do you have the time for it? And you find over there that there's this Jewish vitality, but the German Torah is uh, learning, is savagely uh, downtrodden uh, by the Black Death. They killed so many. Um, and the Spanish Torah learning is busted by 1391. That's why the Germans invented something called smicha, which never existed before. Uh, the reason, Yakawal and the people like that in the middle of the... Uh, 13, early 1400s. They say, after all the great scholars also all died out from the plague and from pogroms and things like this, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, like was the case in America 100 years ago, declares himself a rabbi or a reverend, and he's, he's, he's giving gittin, and he's reaching, thinking, uh, who made you the rabbi? I made a rabbi. You know the famous story in America, uh, who made you the chief rabbi of America? He said, the sign painter. He said, why the chief rabbi of the whole America? That way, in order to fire me, all the communities will have to get together. That'll never happen. You see? Those kind of things at that time. And so they try to come up with a licensing system that the guy at least has smicha from somebody if he doesn't fake it, that he said he learned with the Trumas Adeshin or whatever, and therefore he had some minimal uh, standards of, uh, of qualification. But the Jews bounced back in a remarkable 15th century revival, even under all this tough stuff. Um, the Isserlein or the Trumas Adeshin in, 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 in Germany, whose parents were killed in a pogrom, and he becomes a big rabbi, you know, with big yeshiva and all the rest of it, and makes it happen over there. And uh, in, in Spain, it's a compantan, it's a compantan. I can't go into details over it. Just take it from me that the Jewish learning in the, in the face of all this savage hatred is able to uh, come up over there. The Jewish attitude of these people is always, uh, the heck with the Holocaust, let's proceed. Sheva yipol tzadik v'kom, as the poster says. The righteous man goes down seven times and picks himself up again. If you want an example, we've had this in our lifetime, or after, or people older than me, like after the Holocaust. You know what I'm talking about, right? The people were driven after the war. I could just say the Ponovich Arov, for something like that, right? Where everybody was killed, and the whole thing was killed, and all the rest of it, and, and he, was the, he was in depression for a year or two, but you pick yourself up, 
and you, you, you start all over again. So this was a certain healthy attitude that developed over there. And here's the joke, the most powerful Jewish cultural explosion in the face of all this persecution, the Zohar, which is in Spain in the late 1200s, right around the time we're talking about here. The Kabbalah, which you can't get more Jewish-Jewish, insular, and anti-outsider uh, than that. The Christians are super perplexed. I mean, they had enough trouble figuring out what the Talmud is. And now all of a sudden they pop the Zohar, what the heck is that? And they're fascinated. Over the next 400 years, there's a whole thing called Christian Kabbalists, which once again, as you saw before, they're searching through the Zohar and the Kabbalistic literature to find proofs for Christianity. Italy and Germany become the signature of this. Some of us were in, uh, where was it, in Florence, Pico de Mirandola. They're famous uh, scholars who, uh, there are those who argue that Michelangelo's, uh, what do you call it, ceiling is really full of Kabbalistic illusions because he was friends with Christian Kabbalists. You see? So let's put it this way. If you think they have trouble understanding Gomorrah, you can imagine what a crazy way they're going to inter interpret the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah, in fact, rocks during the second half of the Middle Ages. The bottom line is, in the face of all these burnings, Jews, men and women, churn out an endless supply of handwritten texts. Think about that. That's a heroism. You know, the pregnant lady copying the, the, the tractate as, as a cultural hero. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's, this is, you know, what they call the quiet civic patriotism. It's, it's, really, it, it, it's really moving, let's put it that way. And the result is a literate and sophisticated Jewish culture in a toxic environment. Then, in the middle of the 15th century, and with this I close, comes a technological breakthrough which promises to revolutionize the world of text everywhere, including the world of text among the Jews. Of course, I'm talking about the printing press in Gutenberg, but that's something we'll attack next week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.